It was one of the worst events in all of human history. And before it was even over, there was a desperate plea and an urge to never forget what it was that had happened. Leading up to and during the events of World War II, uh, the Jews were being systematically eliminated. And even during that time, there was a mantra going around among the Jews that said, Jews, write it all down. And among the ghettos and among the death camps, there were journals written, there were diaries that were written recording everything that had happened so that the world would never forget and everybody would know what it was that was going on. And then after the war, when six million Jews had been lost, they let the crematorium stand as a testimony to what it was that had happened. And since then, there have been movies, there have been memorials, there have been books written uh, there have been documentaries that have been made so that the world would never forget what it was that happened those 70 or 80 or so years ago. And how could it? How could the world ever forget what had happened? Something so horrific, something so horrible, something that had such a global impact. Uh, the Israeli parliament even uh, issued a Holocaust Remembrance Day so that people wouldn't forget and surely the world could never forget what it was that had happened. Or could it? In 2013, a survey went out that simply stated the question, have you heard of the Holocaust? Uh, it went out to 101 countries. 53,000 people responded to that survey. And of those 53,000 people, only 54% said that they had ever heard of the Holocaust. And of those 54%, only, uh, rather, it was one-third who said it was either a myth or it was totally overblown. You see, when something becomes commonplace, it can become misremembered. And when something becomes misremembered, it can be forgotten altogether. And that can happen in our churches. As we go through things, as we do things time and time again, uh, things can become sort of rote. Uh, things can get misremembered. And I'm specifically this morning talking about the activity of communion. And those of you who've been in church for a long time, I know several of us have, uh, when you do it again and again and again, sometimes you can misremember things as it becomes commonplace. Uh, you may sit there and think, okay, um, I believe I'm supposed to be uh, thinking or meditating about something before I, 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 I take this. As a matter of fact, um, as, as I recall, I could be judged or something if I do this the wrong way. Uh, and some of you are sitting there sort of doing a spiritual autopsy on yourself. Oh, am I worthy to take it today? Um, am I not worthy to take it today? Do I need to re repent of something? And even if you're going to be totally honest, I'm sure there's people here today, and I think maybe at some point we've all been there, where we just sort of go through the act of communion, we eat the bread, we drink the juice, 
And to be honest, we're not even really thinking about what it is that we're doing. You see, as we do things again and again and again, it can become commonplace. The activities around it can be misremembered, and by God's grace, I hope that this is never, ever forgotten. And when I get to the book of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's something there that really gives me pause. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm just going to read a few verses right now. Verses, um, starting at verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now, there's some scary words here. What this verse is telling me is that there is a right way to take communion and a wrong way to take communion. And if you take it the wrong way, you can be judged. And even as these Corinthians are being told, some of them have become ill and even died because of their, their taking communion uh, in the wrong manner. So what I'd like to do this morning, we're going to do two things. First of all, I want to walk through a brief history and I want to look at four views that the church has had of communion. Uh, we'll start there. We'll look at these four views of communion. And then afterwards, we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 through 34. And we'll see three responses that we're to have uh, during the act of communion. So we'll start out with these four views. Then we'll look at these three responses to communion. So uh, let's talk for a moment about what has happened through church history in this act of communion. Because all through church history, they're grappling with this difficult concept when Christ said, this is my body. I mean, what does that mean? What, does it, what did he mean when he said, this is my body? So they churned over this question. And for the bulk of church history, they believed that in some way Jesus was in the elements of communion. So, for about 1,500 years, they had this view, and we'll call this the, the first view, we'll call it the Roman Catholic view of communion. Uh, in the first view of communion, they believed that Jesus was actually in the elements, that the elements actually became the body and blood of Christ. And they even came up with a term to describe that process by which the elements became the body and blood of Christ. They called it, and here's a big word I learned in seminary, transubstantiation. Okay, Whenever the priest prayed over the, the bread and the wine, and by the way, yes, I said wine. They used real wine in communion up until the end of the 1800s. That was when a guy named Welch invented grape juice. Okay, So if you ever want to know where grape juice came from, it was for communion. This guy Welch invented it. But up and then, uh, until then, it was wine. And uh, when the priest prayed over it, he consecrated it, it became the body and the blood of Christ. Now, it was undetectable. 
the, the changes that were made uh, were undetectable. So even as you were taking it, you wouldn't taste blood. You wouldn't taste uh, human flesh. So, but nonetheless, uh, they were there. Now, there's a problem with this view. Um, obviously, we don't, we don't hold this view today. And it takes too literally, really, uh, what Jesus said when he said, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, in other places in the scriptures, in the book of John, for example, <clears throat> Jesus said, I am the vine. And he says, I am the door. Now, obviously, uh, he didn't mean that he was literally a vine and a door. Uh, so there are places to take scriptures literally. There's places not to take it literally. So this view, really, it takes too literally the words of Christ. That's why uh, it, it's been largely abandoned in Protestant churches. Okay? But that's the Roman Catholic view, this idea of transubstantiation. Now, time rolled on, and we get to the year about 1500, specifically 1517. A big event happened. Most of you probably heard of it, something called the Protestant Reformation. In the year 1517, a guy named Martin Luther, he went up and he hammered on a door in a church in Germany, 95 things he thought were wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, uh, during that time, three guys came on the scene. They took center stage. We'll call these the three big dogs of the Reformation, okay? Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. Each of those guys said, you know what, this transubstantiation thing, it's just not working. So each of them espoused a new view. Now, Martin Luther came up with the idea of something called consubstantiation. He didn't believe in transubstantiation. But again, they're grappling with this question, well, what does it mean when Jesus says, this is my body? So uh, the, the, the Lutheran view, and this, this became popular in Lutheran churches, was this idea that, okay, the elements don't become the body of Christ. Um, however, Jesus is in, with, and under the elements. I know. I know. Well, what does that mean exactly? Uh, well, Martin Luther said, well, well, just imagine a piece of iron, okay, that you hold over a fire. He said, you can see the iron getting hot, maybe start glowing. Uh, you can see the effects of the heat on the iron, but the iron still stays iron, okay? Uh, even though it's hot, even though it's glowing, it, it never stops being iron. So uh, Martin Luther said, that's like the effect that Jesus has on the communion elements, He's affecting them. He's impacting them. However, uh, they're still what they are. They don't lose their breadness or their wineness. They still are what they are. And that was called consubstantiation. And this was the Luther's view. It's what Lutheran churches hold. Well, John Calvin, he didn't really care for that view that much either. And he said, you're still taking things too literally. You're still... Uh, trying to put Jesus too much into the elements. So Calvin came up with another view. It was called the spiritual view of communion. And as the name suggests, it's the idea that the, uh, the spiritual presence of Christ are in the elements. He's not physically there, but he's spiritually in there. And by virtue of taking the, the bread and, and drinking the wine, you're receiving grace when you take communion. Now, the issue that pops up there is nowhere in Scripture does it say that you receive grace simply by taking communion. 
Um, there doesn't seem to be any special grace conferred upon someone when they partake in communion. But that was John Calvin's view, and this is largely the view that the Presbyterian churches hold, and a lot of Episcopal churches hold this view. Enter another guy on the scene, uh, Ulrich Zwingli. Okay? And Zwingli didn't like any of these. And he said that, you know, when we take communion, we are proclaiming the death of Christ. He said, that's what's going on. It's a memorial. So this is called the memorial view. And this is what most Baptist and Bible churches hold. Uh, most of them are in this camp. And as the name suggests, this is a memorial. It's symbolic. The presence of Christ isn't actually in the elements of communion. Okay, it's symbolic. And this is probably where most of us are. This is what I believe to be the strongest view of the four. Um, however, it's really not without its problems, too. Because, see, even in this view, I've got to grapple with what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, that passage I read in the very beginning. If it's only a memorial, then why was it necessary to make this strong warning in 1 Corinthians 11 about taking it the wrong way. I mean, judgment would come down on somebody if they're taking communion the wrong way. There's something different about eating the bread and drinking the juice with the people here on a Sunday morning than it is doing it at your home or going down to Kroger's and buying something off the shelf. So what I want to submit to you among these four views, as you can see, they all seem to have a problem or an issue is that perhaps there is an element of mystery in communion. As a matter of fact, John Calvin referred to communion as the divine mystery. Oftentimes, the, the, uh, the act of communion is referred to as a sacrament. And the word sacrament actually has an element of mystery in it. They always acknowledge, you know what, we don't fully get this thing called communion. Yes, we know we're proclaiming the death of Christ, and yes, we are called to do it in remembrance. But let's not put God in a box. And let's accept that when we enter into the act of communion, there is a mysterious element to it. Otherwise, I think somebody could have nailed it down, and so far, I don't think anybody completely has. So let's humbly acknowledge, you know what? There is a spiritual mystery to this this act of communion that we partake in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We've done it for a long time. And I want to go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because the mystery really came to the surface um, in this chapter. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, we're going to look at three responses now to communion. And I want to start out in verses 23 through 26. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26. And it says, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So our first response in communion is that we remember Christ. 
We're responding to communion by remembering Christ. That's the first thing we do here. And as we go through this passage, what I want you to notice is that he did this for you. Time and time again, this passage, he says, for you. You see, it was for you and I that Jesus left the splendor of heaven. We have no idea what it was Jesus left when he came down to earth and then put on humanity. We just got done uh, celebrating this wonderful holiday where Christ came to earth and he put on humanity. And in doing so, he put on the pain and the hurt and the hunger that all comes with humanity. And then in addition to that, he took on the sin of the world. And he did all this for you. Now, when he took on the sin of the world, it was though every sin that had ever been committed by anyone in the world at any time, past and future, was all pinned directly on Christ. It was as though he committed every single one of those sins, every murder, every rape, every abuse that had ever been done to a child was pinned directly on to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all the wrath of the Father came squarely down on his shoulders. There's a story that Chuck Swindoll tells. Uh, it's about a village in Kenya. And there was a little eight-year-old girl named Monica uh, that lived in this village in Kenya. And Monica was out playing one day, and she fell into a pit. And some people saw her fall into this pit. Uh, she fell in, she broke her leg. And there was a, a village uh, woman there. She was an older woman named Mama Nieri. And Mama Nieri saw her fall into this pit. She immediately ran over, and she jumped into the pit as well. She saw that Monica's leg had been broken. What neither of them knew, that in this pit was a, a black mamba. It's one of the most poisonous snakes in all of Africa. And this snake proceeds to bite Mama Nieri, and then it bites Monica. Both are taken out of the pit. They're taken to a hospital. And then there at the hospital, Mama Nieri dies of the bite. But Monica recovers. And the nurse comes to Monica and says, uh, do you understand why this has happened? And she said, no. She said, you know, when that snake bit Mama Nieri, it let out all of its poison so that whenever it bit you, there was nothing left. And that's why you have life. And this young girl completely understood then what it was Christ had done for her. See, Christ took all the punishment. He took all the poison. And if you haven't put your trust in that saving work of Christ and what he did for you, you can do that right there at your seat right now. Simply by acknowledging, you know what, I'm a sinner and Lord Jesus, you took my punishment. And I'm putting all of my trust into that saving work that you did for me in the cross. I believe that God raised you from the dead on the third day. If you believe that, if you understand that to be true, then today can be the first time that you take communion with us. And we would love that. But that's what Jesus did for you. And we, we take communion in remembrance of what he's done. If you've ever been to Hawaii, if you've ever gone to Pearl Harbor, you've probably seen the, the memorial for the USS Arizona. It stands there as a physical testimony uh, of those men that perished in that boat that's still at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. 1,100 servicemen died that day. So when you, you see that memorial, it stands there testifying and proclaiming the death that those men endured. 
That's, that's what communion is. And our response is to remember what it was Jesus has done for us. So when we're taking communion, our first response is to remember. It's a physical act that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. So remember Christ. Then we see a second response in 1 Corinthians 11. We see it in verses uh, 27 through 30. And in verses 27 through 30, we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we have this unworthy manner uh, that Paul is bringing up. And the first thing we have to figure out, well, well, what is he talking about? What is this unworthy manner he's discussing? Now, at this time, uh, and in this church, they would have a meal before they actually took communion. It was called an agape feast, and it was like a potluck. All the uh, the people in the church, at least a good many of them, would get together, and it was like a bring-your-own-potluck. And they would eat this meal together, uh, and then they would have communion. And that's, that's all fine and good, nothing wrong with that. And I want to backtrack now. I want to go back to verses uh, 20 through 22. And there it says, um, and, and now he's addressing uh, this meal. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So see, you've got this group of people that are gorging themselves before they're taking communion, and they have zero regard for the people who don't have anything to eat. They're eating in front, of, and it, then it gets even worse. They're getting drunk before they're even taking communion. I mean, this is bad, right? I mean, for crying out loud. By the way, thank you for not showing up drunk this morning. It's, that was a, a wonderful duty to stay sober, to come to church this morning. At least I believe that's the case. I, I think we can safely assume that. So these people, you've got the haves that are bringing food in. They're eating it. They're getting drunk right in front of the have-nots who don't have anything to eat, and it's creating this division. And if it's one thing we cannot have in a church, it is a division. But yet that's exactly what's happening in this church in Corinth. They're divided. And you know, out in the world, there's all kinds of things that divide us, right? Uh, there's socioeconomic status, there's education, there's race. Paul knew this was an issue. It was an issue back then, it's an issue today. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, he's going to address this. You know, when, he said when Christ came, there's now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor three, uh, free, and male nor female. He said there are no things that divide us anymore. And when we come together as a church and we take communion, there is meant to be union and community. We see that all wrapped up in the act of communion. Now, we've taken care of most of the issues, I realize, that Paul was addressing. 
there's not some secret buffet somewhere where they serve mimosas and things like that that the affluent people are invited to, okay? There's, there's nothing like that going on. We take pains to make sure that everybody out there is served communion. But perhaps what you need to ask yourself is, is there something in me that is keeping me divided for any reason from someone else? And before you take communion, you need to ask yourself, is there divisions between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there anything at all that I have against someone? Now, that doesn't mean that you're really to sit there and perform this like spiritual autopsy on yourself, okay? You know, where you're kind of sitting there and you're churning. It's like, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I am. I just, you know, if you're guilty of something, repent. Repent and then take communion. But there should be a period, and this is our second response, where we reflect on how we're treating others. We reflect on how we're treating others. Do we have a heart? Are we concerned about those, for example, who aren't here? There's a number of people who would like to have been here this morning. They, they couldn't. Some because it was the weather. Uh, some because uh, they're just physically not able to get out. Um, every Sunday that we have communion, by the way, we take up a benevolence offering because we have a concern for those among us who have financial needs. So maybe it's that you need to visit someone or call someone today that you haven't seen in a while. Uh, maybe you do need to make a contribution to the benevolence offering. Maybe you'd like to get involved in one of our care teams where we're looking after uh, our sick and those who can't be here. There's ways that you can have a concern for those uh, who, who aren't in the same place you are. Now, I want to emphasize that nowhere does Paul say there's anything wrong with being affluent. That's not anywhere in here. The problem isn't that people have stuff. Rather, it goes down to this heart issue. Is there anything that's causing division? Uh, I'll never forget, whenever I was working at a church in Dallas, I was doing an internship there with the men's ministry. And every morning, I'd get to the church, usually about 6 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. There were always two guys that showed up first. One guy, his name was Bill, and he came from a family that owned their own media company. And Bill roared in there at 6 a.m. every Wednesday morning in this red Ferrari. I mean, it was nice. It looked like a spaceship inside. I've never seen anything like this. It was a $250,000 Ferrari. And uh, he said that he chose the Ferrari because it sounded sexier when you started it than the Aston Martin did. And I thought, I guess when you get rich, you can pick cars based on how sexy they sound when you start them up. I don't know. But he had this Ferrari, he roared in there, and he would get there early. But then there was another guy that came in named Michael. And Michael, up till about five weeks before that, had been living under a bridge. And he came in on the train. And I remember sitting there looking at those guys, and to be, to be completely honest, if you didn't know their backgrounds, you wouldn't know of the different worlds they came from. Because they would sit there, they would sit at the table together, they would talk, they would have community, they would fellowship. And I thought, this is a picture of the church. You know, if there are divisions among us, if there are things that separate us in the same way that the world is separated out there, we would have to take church off the sign. Because that's not how a church operates. In a church, you have community. 
In a church, you have fellowship. And in a church, you don't have the divisions that you have out there in the world. So when we take communion, reflect on how you're treating others. Uh, again, if you find fault in yourself, repent and take communion. Um, if you desperately just need to talk to someone, go out and give them a call. Uh, do what you have to do to get into a place where you feel okay about taking communion. So we remember. We remember what Christ has done. We reflect. We reflect on how we're treating others. And we're going to get to this, this third response. And I'm going to skip over to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 29. Now, this is the very first Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus has his disciples. They're, they're sitting together. He's giving them instructions already. They've walked through uh, parts of the Lord's Supper. And then we get to verse 29. And in Matthew 26, 29... It says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, it seems like he's alluding to this being a picture, this act of communion, a predecessor of what's to come. At some point in the future, he's saying, that you and I are going to have a meal together again that's not exactly like this one, and it's going to happen nonetheless. We'll all be together. So he's alluding to this. He's alluding to this future meal together. And again, I want to skip over now to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 9. I'm sorry. Uh, Revelation, um, yeah, 19 verse 9. And he says something else about a meal in Revelation 19. It says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's going on here? Communion serves as a picture of this incredible meal that you and I are going to partake in in some time eternity future. It's this marriage supper of the Lamb. It's this meal that Christ is referring to back in Matthew 26. That there's this future meal that's going to happen. That's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. And communion is just a little lead into it. It's a taste of this wonderful divine meal that's to come. So in addition to remembering, in addition to reflecting, when we respond to communion, we rejoice we rejoice over what's to come. This incredible meal that you and I are going to be in together, that we're going to get to enjoy with loved ones that have passed away and gone on before us. And that's the picture we have. So when we're taking communion, you see, it's, it's like we get a, a little taste of this huge meal that we're all going to have together. Um, I remember whenever I was a kid, uh, I, I, it was the year I had asked for an Atari game system. Anybody remember the Atari game system? Space Invaders, Asteroids. Can I get an amen? 
Yeah, so I remember asking for an Atari, and man, I was just so full of anxiety. Am I going to get this thing? I was tired of going to my friend's house and sponging off them. So I, I was just beside myself over whether or not I was going to get this Atari. So my mom and her genius decided, you know what? Each day leading up to Christmas, I'm going to have a present for you to unwrap. And so she did. And it was just little things, you know? It was like a trapper keeper. And then another day it was like, uh, you know, a pack of pencils that had my name. Did anybody else get a pack of pencils that had their name inscribed on it? Somewhere in a drawer in your house, you still have all kinds of pencils that have your name on them. So it was just little things leading up to that golden day on Christmas morning where I got up, and as soon as I saw the box, I knew what it was. Still remember that day. I was seven years old when I got my Atari gaming system. Communion is like this little gift that we get to open now before we get to the main event, before we get to that that meal that we all get to take together. And it's going to be way better than that little cracker, you know, that you're trying to choke down and that tiny little bit of juice you get when you're, when you're drinking it after that cracker. It's going to be unlike anything we've had together. And, you know, when I look across this crowd, there's lots of people that I would love to share a meal with that we don't get to. You know, in a lifetime, it's not long enough to get acquainted with everybody that you'd like to get to know. But in eternity... We're going to get to know each other real well. And see, we'll all be perfected, so we'll all like each other too. So we rejoice over what's to come. We remember what Christ has done. We reflect on how to treat others. And we rejoice over what's to come. Um, there's a quote here uh, that I wanted to close with. And this is from a man named Leonard J. Vanderzee. And he's a pastor of the South Bend Christian Reformed Church. And he described the communion he used to take. He used to work at the Hope Rescue Mission. And this is how he described communion at that church. It was called Hot Dogs and Communion at the Hope Rescue Mission. And about that day, he says this. He says, I will always think of the body of Christ. Now with this scene in mind, doctors and housewives and professors in nice shoes and brightly colored sweaters shuffling to the table together with men and women who hadn't changed clothes for days or weeks. The sophisticated smell of aftershave mixed with the sharp scent of dirty stocks and stale smoke. People whose lives seemed altogether sharing the same loaf with people whose lives were broken and tattered. We were all one body, for we all ate from the same loaf. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, what a wonderful way to remember the sacrificial death of your son. That we get to come together, Lord, on, a, on any given morning and partake in this very mysterious act of communion. Lord, we do this to remember you. Lord, we do this and take the opportunity to reflect on how we're treating each other, God. And we take this moment, respond to this act, and rejoice. Because we know that someday we are going to take communion with you. Bless us now as we come together in this most precious way. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.